0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew four seventeen through 25. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. God. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. If you're new here, my name's Gabe Coyle, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And I'm also the proud husband of a really beautiful wife. I have two kids and a dog. And going anywhere is less of a carefree afternoon jaunt, even if it's to the park, and more of an emotionally charged pilgrimage with all the prep of D-Day, you know? Did you get the diapers? I thought you got the diapers. Israel, what are you eating? Ava, don't hit your brother. Okay. Here we go, right? Look out for the neighbor's cat. Bonus. And then when it comes to these longer family road trips, suddenly everything's ratcheted up and you feel like you're stockpiling for Armageddon. You know, I remember the days in seminary and my car, just me and the open road and a change of underwear, you know? It was beautiful. Now it's the same car, same open road, just three more occupied seats. The floor is covered by my dog and then there's... A pack and play, the stroller, the attachments that go with the stroller, the toys, and the clothes. I mean, there are clothes for breakfast, clothes for morning nap, clothes for lunch, clothes for going to Target, onesies for night-night, and then extra clothes for blowouts. And then there, those are, then there are the clothes for the kids. I mean, on top of all of that, literally, on top of all of that are diapers. Every nook and cranny are diapers We're like one big marshmallow making our way down the street. In all seriousness, I love my family and I love taking road trips, but without fail seems to be that moment where you're packing the car and you realize not everything's going to fit. And you realize you're going to have to leave something behind, preferably not a child, but something you think is almost as important as one of your children. And Allie and I will banter back and forth as to why it will fit, why it has to fit, why I will make it fit, and then it doesn't fit, and then we realize it can't fit. And we realize we're going to have to go and leave it behind if we're going to go anywhere. Well, life's a lot like that, isn't it? You have to leave something behind if you're going to go anywhere. If you're going to change, if you're going to help bring change, if you're going to move from point A to point B in your life, there's an opportunity cost. And this morning, we rediscover the same is true with Jesus. You see, throughout history, Christians have been called followers of Jesus for good reason, And Matthew, he wants us to see what happens when Jesus calls the first people to join him, what it means to follow Jesus now. And following means leaving. In other words, you have to leave in order to follow. Now, it's not usually the thing you think is extra, not at first. Instead, it's usually one of the things that's hardest for you to leave. That's what Jesus wants most. You have to leave in order to follow. And you may remember last week explicitly me saying, or other words, I'm not saying that I'm not, we're not trying to be good enough in order to be accepted by God, okay? That's not what I'm saying. There is no such thing as earning your keep when it comes to salvation. And yet simultaneously, as we seek to come to understand the very definition of a Christian, which literally means little Christ, it's more than... Just believing a God exists or even nodding your head to true propositions about the true God's existence. You see, James says even the demons believe and they shudder still. It's more than even being in the right place at the right time or even being nice, whatever that means. But being a little Christ, a Christian is following the true Christ. Not a Christ in our making in 21st century Midwestern culture, but the man of history, And we follow Jesus, which means saying no to self, no to our plans, our opinions, our values, and yes to Jesus wherever he leads, standing with him and whatever he condemns, dancing with him and whatever he celebrates, chasing him. And the result is that Jesus flips things on on its head, which is why we've kind of dubbed this section and the gospel account of Matthew as we're walking through this book, The Upside Down Kingdom. Because this kingdom, this kind of kingdom is paradoxical, it's disorienting. This is the place where those who lose their life find it. This is the kind of kingdom where life actually begins to make sense, where it's not easier, but somehow we know it's better and it's worth whatever we left behind. And that's what comes to define Christian. That's what this kind of calling has always been about, even from the very first followers of Jesus. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and you're using one of our community Bibles, that's on page 809. Because I want us to look together at this story, to walk through this story and see what, when, and why we must leave in order to follow. As we've been re-entering Jesus's life, let me recap where we've been. Where Matthew has been, we've already explored the logistics—these phenomenal logistics of Jesus's birth. To say it very lightly, right? We've also discovered and seen Jesus, around 30-ish years old, becomes baptized, and God the Father proclaims down on Jesus that He is His one and unique Son. This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well. Pleased, And then when the Holy Spirit descends upon him, where does he send Jesus first and foremost? But into the wilderness to showcase his perfect resilience where we have all failed. And so even show that the temptations of the greatest adversary, Satan himself, cannot thwart God's redemptive plan. And today we begin where Jesus begins his new vocation as an itinerant preacher. Now, if you happen to be in town when Jesus makes it to your neck of the woods, this is his shtick, as we kind of see in Scripture. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it probably wasn't as intense as, you know, a prophet on the street corner with a bullhorn, but it definitely ruffled some feathers. This is something that's in your face. It was as if Jesus was saying explicitly to do some translation work for us here, look, God is on his way. And his kingdom is coming and he's going to put to order all of this disordered world and all of its chaos. In his kingdom and through his king. So stop running from him and turn to him. Repent. Turn to him before it's too late. You see, urgency is pregnant in that proclamation. And right from the, right from the get-go, we see that apprenticeship and repentance are integral to following Jesus. And in our passage, we see how. We we see how. Okay, so Jesus, one day, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he comes upon these fishermen. And to give us some perspective, courtesy of Google Earth, okay, the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias across Scripture, sometimes, as you're reading through the Gospel accounts, it's just called the sea. And if you don't know the context, you won't know what the Scripture writers are talking about. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's about 64 square miles, And about 700 feet below sea level. Having been there myself and stayed in a kibbutz on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, I've seen as the Mediterranean sea breeze comes from the western coast over the desert and hits the hills, which are on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and burst into these erratic storms. You see, back in Jesus' day, the Sea of Galilee was a heavily fished lake, it was a key economic engine and also the primary source of food for the region. So Jesus sees these two brothers, and they're fishing. Their names were Simon, who is later called Peter, and everybody else calls him Peter, because when Jesus changes your name, everybody tends to pick up on that, okay? And the other guy is named Andrew. And these guys, we come to find out in John's account of the gospel, had actually heard about Jesus. They'd heard Jesus' message. They'd even seen some pretty miraculous stuff. But for whatever reason, they just go back to life the way it used to be, the way it always was doing what guys from Bethsaida which literally means fish town do they're fishing so in other words they have not yet left to follow and Jesus comes up to them while they're fishing and to be clear this isn't you get a line I get a pole baby style of fishing okay this is commercial style fishing these are large round nets about 25 feet in diameter that have anchors or these large weights around so as you tossed out the net it would sink around a school of fish and you would pull it in and have your catch such a surplus that you could sell in the marketplace. And with no Midwestern politeness, no really formal introductions, Jesus just comes upon these two guys and says what in chapter 4 verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Which if that's not weird enough, if I were in those shoes, I'd be like, excuse me? All right. I kind of know who you are and everything, but can you repeat that for me? No, Matthew records none of that. Instead, he just says in verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now you may be thinking like I was. Well, okay, Gabe, there's some cultural baggage here. You just don't understand the authoritarian structures and how rabbis did things during that day. Well, The unfortunate reality about thinking that way is it's just not true. In the first century, this is still very backwards, okay? Rabbis did not pursue their disciples, their apprentices, their followers. Instead, followers would find a rabbi who'd written some really good books or, you know, had some really great talks, and they would pursue them and say, hey, can I follow you? Can I learn every aspect of your life? Can I be covered in the dust of the rabbi, right? It's kind of like applying for college today you know, Harvard didn't come knocking on my door, but I have to say they were a little quick on the rejection letter. I didn't even apply. Do not come here, Gabe Coyle, you know, but seriously though, this is very upside down. Even in the first century culture, this, this balks at the way things are normally done, but it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus does things a bit upside down. And he just keeps right at it. Now he has Peter and he has Andrew, you know, in tow. And he comes up to another set of brothers, James and John, who are often called the sons of thunder in other spots for their temper. And they're on this boat with their father, Zebedee, and they're mending their nets from being fishing or going out fishing that day. Once again, I want to help paint our imaginations with historically accurate pictures. And there are archaeologists who discovered a boat in the Sea of Galilee that dates back to the first century. It's about 27 feet long, so it's about from this chair right here to this chair over here. Enough room for about 15 workers. Here's a picture of a smaller replica if it were to be completely refurbished, okay? Now we need to understand that having a boat in the first century was a sign of wealth. Peter and Andrew would have had a boat too because it was an advantage if they had the financial capacity. And what we learn from Mark's account of this particular situation as well is that it's not just James and John and their father, but there are also hired workers. This is an enterprise in which James and John are a part of. The reason I say that is so often we think exclusively that disciples of Jesus were the poor and down and out. Majority, yes, but not exclusively so, as we see here with James and John. Being a part of a family business in which they were to inherit one day, which had substantial assets, that was a privilege in the first century. These are privileged individuals. And yet what does Jesus do even with them? He calls them to follow him. Almost extremely similar to those who had a very different socioeconomic status. Yeah? And Matthew says in verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I want to pause here, okay, for just a minute before we enter into the remaining verses. And we're going to sit here for just a few minutes. The first thing we need to understand is that Matthew, he's not just recording history for history's sake. Oh, that's a very interesting story. This isn't, you know, gathering together information of a bygone age for people who like to dabble in biographies, okay? Matthew's seeking to be very accurate in his record of history, but he has a purpose, just like every historian has had a purpose, And most scholars, they believe that Matthew wrote this account 20 to 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Because more and more people are talking to eyewitness accounts who engaged Jesus, and they're learning about him, they're hearing about him, and they want to follow. And so Matthew begins to record what historically had happened, what he had seen, what others had seen, and to put together a historical account of the true person of Jesus Christ so that they might follow him. You see, as he's recording history, he's calling each reader to now enter into this story to make that their story, to hear the call of Christ afresh as him calling to each and every one of us. In other words, you have to leave in order to follow. So with that in mind, what do we have to leave in order to follow Jesus? Well, in one sense, everything. Everything. You know, there is this moment later on in Matthew that he records where the scribe comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment throughout all of Scripture? And Jesus shoots him a question back and he says, well, what is the Torah? What does the Scripture say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus pats him on the back and says, good on you. Get on with it, Right? Jesus wants it all. As he comes as the son of God, as the rightful heir of the throne of God's perfect kingdom, he wants it all. Not just the good parts that we can try to impress Jesus and others with, not just the messed up parts that we're asking him to help us with, but all of it. And sometimes we can become so familiar with this follow narrative here in scripture or even so far removed that we miss what's going on in the story. We can miss just how insane these brothers acted, okay? Well, you don't understand, Gabe. These guys were going to be the apostles. Of course they're going to leave, right? And they were fishermen. How would you like to smell like fish all day? This is a move up in their social status. Well, not quite. You see, these fishermen were just ordinary folks. We can't miss that. Andrew, Peter, James, and John, ordinary. For Peter and Andrew, fish town was hometown. It was the sure thing, but it was better than most other things, right? And for James and John, they had their foot in the door of a successful family business with promised time with dad in a culture where family was everything and a comfortable life where most people thought comfort was spelled N-E-V-E-R. And still Peter and Andrew, we read, left their nets and followed him. And James and John left the boat and their father and followed him. You have to leave in order to follow. And this was really everything for these guys. We can't miss this. Matthew makes, or Peter makes this explicit later on in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 19, there's this rich young guy who comes to Jesus and says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus and this guy banter back and forth for a bit, but ultimately it comes down to this rich young guy selling all of his possessions and giving his proceeds to the poor. Now follow me. And he puts his head down in dismay and walks away because he can't do it. And Peter, not missing his opportunity here, in chapter 19, verse 27 says, See, we have left everything and followed you. Don't just see nets and boats. This is everything to Peter and Andrew, James, and John. For them, this is like saying, hey, I trust you with my kids in a broken education system because you've called me to be downtown in a faithful presence. Hey, God, I long to not just hear about the vulnerable, but be proximate to the vulnerable and recognize my own vulnerability in that whole process. So I'm gonna move downtown and be next to and engaged in our downtown, even though I don't know how or where yet. It's like saying, God, I trust you with my heart. Such that I'm going to forgive those who have hurt me so deeply, time and again. That I'm going to release those wounds and those pains that they've caused. I will no longer find my identity in past pain, but I trust you. This was their everything, you see. This was their legacy, their stability, their hope, their identity. All wrapped into one. Now, to be clear, so often this passage has been manipulated to say, see, if you're a pastor, you're really following Jesus. But that's not what's going on here. That has been sabotage. That is not what's going on in this text. Because I want you to be clear in understanding that Jesus isn't calling each and every person to leave their job, okay? Jesus isn't calling each and every person to now go to Africa and be a pastor, you know? or to even really get rid of something, so take a deep breath, (laughs) but you're not off the hook. Cute, cheesy joke, right? Um, There's something that's happening here where, yeah, 12 guys, they do give up their vocation, and they enter into the full-time school of Jesus, to be clear, but there are plenty of folks across the pages of this book about what God has been doing, where he actually doesn't call them to leave their vocation, but calls them to stay and to now redefine how they do what they do or who they're doing it for as if Jesus himself were living through them. You know, it's a lot more like what Sam Albury, he's a pastor who's wrestled through same-sex attraction his whole life and yet seeks to live into God's design of sexual purity. I want you to hear what he writes in his book. Ever since I've been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this, the gospel Must be harder for you than it is for me. As though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel is somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it's likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. Hear that. This isn't an easy, happy go lucky calling. This is leaving everything and trusting it with Jesus. You have to leave in order to follow. This isn't a call to comfort, but to suffering. Those who lose their life will find it. That is not a call for health and wealth and all prosperity our way, not in the near side. On the far side, that's our calling and our beauty and the hope of the new creation, but not instantaneously, not tit for tat, not as a way to manipulate God. And for most of us here, The hardest thing for us to leave isn't our jobs. So I want to ask you this morning, what are you holding back? What are you holding back? What is Jesus calling you to let go in order to follow him, to trust him with? My guess is for most of us in here this morning, when I asked that question, something popped instantaneously into your head, or maybe it was even before that question was asked. I want you to write it down on your note sheet. Put it in the margins of your Bible. Put it in a things-to-do app on your phone. Whatever device and pathway you're using right now, write it down. Don't lose it because God is working here. He's not a faraway, distant God in some other universe who spun up a clock and let it go. No, he's working in this room now in your heart. So be aware. Jesus is calling you even now. And that thing whatever that thing is for you, that's probably the thing that makes it hardest for you to follow Jesus. If you're anything like me, I think I can sign off on most of what Jesus has to say pretty confidently. That's great. That's good. But there's at least one thing that just irks me, maybe and probably more, but at least one. I'm like, Jesus, come on. Like, look, I'll follow you to the end, but why don't you just keep your nose out of my finances, okay? Jesus, I love the program and what you're doing and how you have brought it, and I get that you're the son of God and all, but why don't you keep your little grubby, nail-pierced hands out of my sex life? And we may not say it that explicitly, but we say it in a world of emoticons and passive-aggressive. We don't need words to say those things when our actions speak way louder and just as blatant as that statement. What are you holding back? Hear him calling and obey him where you know he has spoken. Start there. You don't have to have step eight figured out to take step one. Don't overanalyze it, as Jeff said. Remember, he's calling you to follow him. We're not calling Jesus to follow us. This is us saying, yeah, you're right. I trust you. I'm going where you're going. What are you holding back? But you know, interestingly enough, that's not even half of it. <laughs> because Jesus doesn't just want all of us. He wants all of us now. Did anybody else grow up with the uh, dreaded three count? Anybody? If you don't get down here by the count of three, and it was usually followed up. When your father gets home, it was usually both of those hand in hand. What was your response? I know my response, and it's actually the same response as my daughter when I tried it on her. A majority of the times we don't move until 2.9 seconds have passed, right, right? And I used to be so proud of myself that I was a good dad. Did you see how she was obedient when I got to three? (laughs) Until I realized it's just really bad parenting because I'm teaching my daughter delayed obedience, which is just disobedience up until the very end, right? (laughs) If we're honest with ourselves. Now, give me three seconds to really think over whether I'm going to trust you with this or not. I want you to think about it. When, when do Peter, Andrew, James, and John respond to Jesus? Both times in Matthew, in this short text, he emphatically says, immediately. You know, interestingly enough, when you get down to the Greek that be, is behind this word, immediately, it means Immediately. There's no wiggle room here. And look, Jesus is not a valley girl from California with these exaggerations. It was like immediately. There's no explosion and elaboration of the story. And Matthew never uses the word immediately, ever. It's very rare. He's trying to make a point in communicating this history. It wasn't after they found they had a really good price to get their nets for on eBay. It wasn't after James and John realized they had a pretty secure bank account that could carry them through this next venture. No, for Jesus, his timeline of obedience is right now. And we'll follow and figure out the details as you trust him, which is very anti-Midwestern culture, okay? We got to plan it out to the T, make sure we've got every I dotted and T crossed. But sometimes you just got to trust him. Maybe you're like me. Um, so often I can fool myself into thinking that I'm really passionate about everything that Jesus talks about and his apostles who he is given the authorization to now give a voice to the church and guide and form the church. And, and I'm happy about most of what he has to say, but just as long as I can define my timetable, right? I remember growing up and my mom would say, hey, Gabe, can you take out the garbage? And I was like, sure, I've got a part to play. Can you take it out now? Ah, you know? I'm playing with my guitar right now. I don't want to get up and do it. And so we start doing this negotiation same way throughout the rest of our lives with Jesus. I'll get into my Bible daily and start praying daily once this busyness at work slows down. Oh, God, I'll stop looking at porn or give you my sex life once I get married. Or now that I'm married, once my marriage gets better. Oh, we'll be more generous when we get that next promotion. I'll start caring about the vulnerable when they move into my neighborhood. Oh, I'll trust in Jesus when I get a little more proof. So why not now? What are those things promising you that you don't think Jesus can deliver? What are those barriers for you? Instead, as we so often sing in the song, Come ye sinners, come ye weary, heavy laden, Lost and ruined by the fall, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Stop waiting. Give it to him now. You have to leave in order to follow. If you want to know Christ, you've got to follow Christ. But that begs the question, right? Because that's all really nice and neat, but why? (laughs) Why should I give everything to Jesus now? Why should I trust his apostles whom he sent with a unique authority to now guide and shape the church? Why trust him with that? Because I'm not saying it's going to be comfortable. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. No way, shape, or form do we find that we're going to get rich out of this whole deal. Most of God's people throughout history find that they become more engaged with poverty and find themselves giving away generously and becoming rich in other ways than becoming this financially prosperous institution because we happen to do just the right things at the right time. Why? Look with me again at verses 23 through 25. And he, speaking of Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing... And the gospel of the kingdom is what he had been proclaiming up in verse 17, which we'd already highlighted, in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame, speaking of Jesus' fame, spread throughout all Syria, which is interesting considering the geopolitical climate we find ourselves, that God is working in the places often we disregard. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, which are 10 cities, predominantly Gentile cities, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Most commentators highlight what Matthew's doing here is summarizing these early days of Jesus's ministry. As he's going around Galilee, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Pursue God in his way of doing things before it's too late. And the kingdom breaks in. As people are now following, do you notice there in the text, the crowds followed? That's the exact same word that speaks of Peter and Andrew, James and John. They're following Jesus. They're leaving it behind and healing and beauty and communities are being transformed. So, so why? Why do we have to leave in order to follow? I could tell you, I could wax eloquently about it, or kind of eloquently, I don't know but I think it would be better for us to hear a story, a story from one of our global partners, Elam, who's on the front lines of planting churches in Iran where it's illegal, where to follow Jesus could mean walking into a prison cell or potentially losing your life, everything. And this past fall, Elam celebrated 450 baptisms. Can you imagine this? All former Muslims who have now rejected Allah and his prophet Muhammad and said, Jesus Christ is the exclusive Lord and Savior, the ultimate judge, not Muhammad, but Jesus. And they risked their lives to follow him. So let's watch one story of a woman who did exactly that. Now I know the dangers of showing that video. Because with an over-politicized culture, we can so easily begin to demonize whole cultures. I know that we have broken social structures and systems in our country just as much as any other. So I don't want you to walk away thinking that this is fear-mongering or demonization of another people group. What I want to highlight is Ladon's story and the truth of those who are in cultures that are hostile to the Christian faith. To those who seek to follow Jesus, who are risking their lives in order to follow Jesus, who often lose their lives, beheaded or otherwise, for the purposes of the gospel. And we got to ask ourselves, why? When Ladan comes to discover Jesus, and that she can now call God Father instead of tremble in fear, she can see him as loving and caring instead of one who has come to punish Why is she so excited to share with everyone what she has found, who she has found? That is why. Because Jesus is better always. It comes down to what we do with God's son, Jesus Christ. And he is better always. Now, I I was wrestling through this, this this week and I know there may even be some in this room who think, Gabe, settle down. I was even thinking to myself, Gabe, should I settle down? Why am I talking to myself? You know, Jesus, isn't that extreme, is he? And seeing articles in the newspaper about churches who are saying, you know what? They're just parts of scripture that just aren't relevant anymore. They're not as contemporary as to where our values have shifted. They don't line up with who we are, so we should cut them out. Where does that stop? And I think, are we talking about the same Jesus anymore? The one who sent out his apostles with his authority to shape the church, which has guided us for the past 2,000 years on so many issues. What Jesus are we talking about? And I needed to recenter myself on who the Jesus of Scripture is. He's the very Son of God, the very God of very God. Or as the Apostle Paul says, the very image of the invisible God. In Colossians, by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether governments or rulers or authorities. The very breath we breathe is sustained by the thoughts he thinks, and the very consciousness that you and I enjoy is because of his conscience brilliance. Perfect in wisdom, unfathomable in power holy good. This Jesus is the promised Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God that has been promised throughout the ages. And he empties himself. He leaves it all to come and to be born a human being, but not in a palace, not in an upper-class family, a middle-class family, not even average. He enters into the poor and an oppressed nation, and a forgotten people. And John says when he comes into his own world, there's no room for him. And he's rejected by his own. And his name, Jesus, that Matthew highlights, gives us the very central quality of his mission that was proclaimed by the angels to both Mary and Joseph. Yeshua, he will save his people from their sins. That is why he has come And how after everything else he went through just to be here with us. Matthew says he sets his face like flint to descend even deeper. To chase suffering, to enter death, even the most brutal of deaths. To be mutilated through beatings and and lashings. To ultimately be slaughtered on a cross upon which Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, the Apostle Paul says. Dying a billion deaths in one moment and with his final breath screams victory when he says it is finished. He came to die. Dead he was buried in a tomb, sealed, guarded by elite Roman forces to ensure that no one tampered with this so-called God-man's body so that the rumor of a resurrection would go around and so bring fuel to the fire of this messianic movement. But death couldn't hold him down. Elite Roman forces couldn't keep him in. A stone would not seal his fate, but instead, this Jesus, the one who had Thomas feel the nail piercings in his side and the piercings in his hands, this Jesus, the one who appeared to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and now commissioned him to speak on his behalf. This Jesus has been exalted and given the name above every name, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. It's his name, not any other. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He's at the very center of what God is doing. Always has been, always will be. And you see this Jesus, he never points from a safe distance and then says, why don't you go over there and do this and that? We have a Lord, a Savior, a God who came, who paid our penalty, made a way where there seemed to be no way and now calls us to follow him in everything. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus says, yeah? And he's still calling us today to lose our life that we might find it, and to meet him there. What do you need to leave in order to follow this morning? Why wait? Why keep holding on to it? If this is who you get to follow, how can you wait any longer? Well, in a moment, I'm gonna call us to follow Jesus to his table. As we do every week, we come In this gospel, it presents itself, it proclaims itself to our senses of taste and touch and smell. And even in common broken bread, we hear the call to take and eat, for this is my body, for you. In common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you're new here, I want to reiterate, you don't have to be a member of Christ's community, partake in the Lord's Supper But followers of Jesus are welcome at Jesus' table. And when you come, you'll come down these two aisles, gather in groups of four to six. You'll take the bread, dip it in the juice, and partake together. But before we come, let's take a moment to examine our hearts, our lives, our everything. And I want you to ask yourself, what's the one thing you need to leave behind before you can pick up the bread? What do you need to let go before the bread can come in? Let's pray. Amazingly gracious God, more gracious than we can fathom. Help us see our sin, help us see and be honest about our failures unveil our cultural proclivities, reveal to us the truth of how you've designed us and called us and remade us in Jesus and forgive us for the ways we fight for the last word. Forgive us for how we idolize control and self-sovereignty and self-definition. Forgive us For our situationally deaf ears and hard hearts when you call, forgive us. For the ways we deceive ourselves into thinking that delayed obedience is anything other than disobedience, forgive us. For the way we trust the promises of the world more than the promises of your word, forgive us for how we seek to use Jesus as a self-help guide in certain areas of our life or even in our communities, but still reject him as Lord over all. And forgive us for holding back what was never ours in the first place. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Amen.